This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Glad to have you with us for another foray into the fascinating hobby of model railroading. While it's still fresh in our minds, we want to again remind you that if you've missed any earlier episodes of shows that have since fallen from our website, be sure to visit Train Life, where you'll find archives of the Model Railway Show from episode number one. You can click to the Train Life website from our own homepage. Today's show is about electrified iron and ironing boards. Later, Jim will chat with British modeler Paul Allen, who's pressed the family ironing board into service at overseas train shows. But first, it's Trevor's turn as he talks to Tom Picarillo, a man who has built a very successful hobby tool business and a top-notch O-scale traction empire. A few of us dabble in live steam, and even fewer still run trains built around clockwork mechanisms. But the majority of model railway enthusiasts rely on electricity to power their layouts. For some of us, that's perfectly prototypical. I'm speaking, of course, of the traction modelers, those who model railroads that operated under wire or with a third rail. Interurban modeling is not as popular as diesel or steam, but for those who love it, there's nothing better than an elegant combine rolling up the middle of a small town street or a juice jack hauling a few freight cars under wire. It's not trolley modeling or heavy electric railroading as practiced by companies like the Milwaukee Road. It's in between and in a magical place all its own in the hobby. There have been a few legends in the hobby who chose the interurban as their subject. My personal favorite is the late great Bob Heggie and his crooked mountain lines. Today, possibly the most famous electric modeler in North America is Tom Piccarillo. He's the president of Micromark, and his freelance Somerset County traction system is an O-scale basement-filling empire under wire. Tom, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Hi, Trevor. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing fine. Good. Now, why traction? What's the attraction for you? Well, you know, Trevor, electric traction is something different than the commonplace steam or diesel-powered railroad. It has the same kind of appeal that narrow-gauge railroads have and that much of the equipment is unusual and often demonstrates creativity on the part of the railroad's master mechanic. And being powered through the overhead wire brings a sense of realism that's shared only with the live steam section of the hobby. Now, have you always been a traction modeler? If not, then when did you first hear the siren song of the overhead? Well, as with most seasoned model railroaders, I got my start first with Lionel Trains, then moved on to HO with the usual collection of steam and diesel locomotives and popular road names. As a teenager, I used to ride my bike to a neighboring town each Thanksgiving weekend to view the big layout show of the O-Scale Model Railroad Club in Westfield, New Jersey. An interurban railroad was an extensive part of their operation, and I marveled at the way the self-propelled cars moved down the track in such a realistic and interesting way, especially by picking up power from the overhead wire. The guys that were operating the traction line seemed to be having the most fun. And I found out that they themselves mostly built the cars they were running. Now, real interurban lines were in their heyday in the 20s and 30s. Younger modelers may not be familiar with just how important these lines were to transportation in the first part of the 20th century. How would you describe their role? Electric traction provided a clean, quiet, and inexpensive alternate to powering trains by dirty, noisy, and expensive-to-maintain steam locomotives. And as electric traction developed into a technically and financially feasible mode of power, Many railroads, especially in urban areas, then had the means to comply with proposed smoke abatement ordinances being formulated by government officials. 
until the diesel engine was perfected for use in the late 1920s, electric traction proved to be a high-tech solution to many problems, including a way to power trains through long tunnels where smoke from steam locomotives became a real hazard to the people running and riding the trains. That just reminds me of the Boston, Maine, had a very famous line through the Berkshires that was powered by uh, electric traction to get the steam locomotives from one end to the other. So, very good point. Now, in my introduction, I mentioned Bob Heggie as a major influence on my own hobby, and I'm surprised that I don't actually model an interurban, although I do have some O-scale pieces. Who were your influences? Well, when I joined the Westfield Club in 1975, the traction modelers there included Bill Balmer, Gene Staines, and Jack Shawty, all of whom took me under their wings and showed me how to build and operate a traction line. Jack and I spent many evenings and weekends working not only on the Westfield Club layout, but also developing three home layouts to take the place of the club layout when it was lost a couple of years later to an urban development project. Now, your Somerset County traction system often appears in the Micromark catalogs. Uh, Tell us about your layout. Somerset County traction system is a 32-foot by 40-foot model of a could-have-been railroad of 47 route miles that wound its way through towns located in and around the Wachung Mountains of north-central New Jersey in late summer 1957. This time slot allows the use of steam locomotives and early diesels on the principal interchanging main line, the Easton and Amboy Railroad, which is based on the Lehigh Valley's line through New Jersey. And car float operations at both terminals of the Somerset County Traction System also move cars on and off the property, and a branch line to an automated quarry train adds variety to the operation. The 350-foot-long main track is arranged in a linear fashion with no confusing loops or a hidden track. The track plan includes passing track in each town so that trains can get past each other and motors, uh, that's the terminology used for electric locomotives, can make runaround moves. There are about 38 pieces of powered equipment on the railroad, consisting of everything from a tiny four-wheel motor on the SCTS to a 210 steamer on Easton Amboy. Several motors have been scratch-built, but most are rebuilds of junkers that I purchased at model railroad flea markets or train shows. Freight cars consist of an assortment of scratch-built and kit-built items. Currently, there are about 105 cars on the layout with more in stock waiting to be assembled. Backdrop scenes were painted by hand and separate the main aisles. It's a long walk from one end of the railroad to the other, but there's a feeling of accomplishment when a trip has been completed. With all the track work completed, most of the scenery roughed, and I've reached the stage that many hobbyists consider to be the fun part of model railroading. I'm enjoying building rolling stock and super detailing structures and adding sound and lighting effects to enhance the layout's atmosphere. I particularly enjoy it when the crew members discover something that I've added to the layout since their last visit. Now let's talk about how your layout has influenced the decisions you make as president of Micromark. Uh, For example, you must develop tools or source products to meet your own layout building needs, which then find their way into the catalog? Oh, absolutely. There's no better way to find out what kinds of products are needed than to undertake projects of your own. If you keep your mind focused on the perfection and time reduction aspects of completing spare time activities, a number of great products will come to light. My engineering background, 38 years of business experience, and 47 years of model building experience all add up to a way of making good decisions for Micromark's operation. 
and I further refined my model building techniques using the tools I developed for Micromark and was awarded my Master Model Railroader Certificate in 2009. Congratulations on that. I guess one of the things, that, one of the things that goes into that is uh, taking on new skills, and one of the new skills that people have to learn if they're uh, going to take on interurban modeling is stringing wire. That's often a skill that drives hobbyists away from traction modeling, I think. What's been your experience with building overhead, though? Well, you know, Trevor, I really enjoy hanging overhead wire. Jack Shawty taught me the techniques needed to build overhead from scratch, including the fabrication of wire hardware such as the ears, hangers, span wires, and pull-offs. My grandfather was a toolmaker, and he and I developed a machine that automatically threads the bottom two inches of the 3 diameter steel rods I use for line poles so that they can be securely anchored to the roadbed. Hanging overhead is really not all that difficult, but as with any technology, learning a few fundamental requirements and several fabrication techniques makes it all possible. Obviously, the ability to solder is a fundamental skill for building an overhead wire system, but again, mastering a few basic techniques, such as cleaning and fluxing the wire, takes away the difficulties usually encountered by novices. What are some of the other challenges that people face in building an interurban as opposed to a steam or a diesel-powered road? Well, you know, many streetcar lines were typically built with very sharp curves in order to turn corners on city streets. And many interurban lines used the streetcar tracks to access downtown terminals, so big cars had to be designed to negotiate tight curves. And the models consequently need a similar design. My railroad represents a steam railroad that was electrified later in its life, and it does not include street running. So my curves are relatively broad radius, and I can use standard freight cars without radial or wide swing, couplers without fuss. Much of the challenge with traction modeling has to do with obtaining the parts and materials needed to construct such equipment, but as is with any niche activity, the modeler quickly learns where to find the source of supply. In certain cases, particularly regarding the electric wiring needed for a model railroad, traction modeling makes it easy. Since the overhead provides the hot side of the circuit, both rails are typically connected together as the ground returns and the electrical shorts that plague two-rail return loop wiring and turnouts are eliminated. There must be some real advantages to modeling in interurban. What do you tell people about the joys of interurban modeling? Well, to me, it's simple. You get a lot of action per square foot, you get something that's out of the ordinary, and you get recognition by other model railroaders for doing something exceptional. Tom, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. It's been a treat. Well, it's been my real pleasure. I've been speaking with Tom Piccarillo, president of Micromark and general manager of the Somerset County Traction System. Thanks, guys. You know, Trevor, I'd love to get into traction, but I can't afford the overhead. You just thought that up, didn't you? It just came to me and it blurted out, what can I tell you? Wow. You know, there's lots of people who were in traction and still are. uh, I should be. Yes, (laughs) and you're going to be if you keep doing this. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, I mentioned Bob Hagee when I introduced Mm -hmm. Tom Piccarello. He was a big influence on my thinking about layouts. And, you know, I'm I'm drifting towards wire, I've got to tell you, but uh, I still remember those cover shots in MR of William Clauser and his, his magnificent electric stuff as well. Absolutely. People who are looking for traction, of course, there's lots. Lots of it's still out there. Stan Richmond from the Car Works regularly imports stuff. MTS does traction. And there's been a couple of project layouts. Walter Olson did the Brandywine Transit Company. Remember that uh, project? Yes, I did. Indeed, I do. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, we have to say uh, hello to Roger Chrysler and his Grand River Railroad. He uh, has a home layout. He was also part of the Cambridge Model Railroad Club, which had a sectional layout that went to Indeed. Shows. It was a great layout. Uh, we had the chance to see it often being in our neck of the woods. Yes, absolutely. And if people are looking for that, check out the February 19. 
1997 RMC. They had a cover story on that layout. Good oh, stuff. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and of course we should mention that Tom also. We we have to mention Micromark, don't we? Well, that's right. Micromark is Tom, and I would say I remember how I started off a of model railroading. Serious railroading at about age 15 with a, my father's hacksaw and a dull exacto knife and two brushes. And uh, you still have all your fingers. I still have all my fingers. I think I still have those tools, uh, along with some quality flint tools. No, I just want to say, you know, it's really worth it. I've learned the hard way, folks. When you need a quality tool, buy it now and enjoy it for the rest of your life. Don't put it off. I know. I've just picked up some taps from Micromark. I'm quite pleased with them. And I have to give a shout out. They have great online ordering and uh, I found just a great customer experience. So yes, that's uh, that's Micromark for you. Yes. What, what Another dangerous catalog to have. It Along is indeed. Yes. Well, uh, I think we should, we should move on from that. Uh, we have pressing matters to attend to. Uh, it's time now for Jim and his guest, Paul Allen, as we once again look overseas for creative layout presentation ideas. The attraction of flanged wheels on steel rails is a universal one. That's why the hobby of model railroading is practiced in countries around the world. Here at the Model Railway Show, we encourage our listeners to think outside the toolbox, but we also want you to think outside the country. Take a look at how those living under different flags find their ways to have fun and express themselves through the hobby of model railroading. Pick up some foreign magazines or surf the net. Some of the finest modeling you've never seen is just a key click away. One of the things I'm learning is that the exhibition circuit across the pond functions somewhat differently than in North America. In densely populated areas, train shows have better attendance and can therefore be a better paying proposition. It also helps, of course, that Brits like their trains. And in Britain, where homes are often smaller, the reduced space for a layout can lead to ingenious solutions. Think micro layout. And what better to take on the road than a small layout? It's time to introduce Paul Allen of Basingstoke in the UK, who celebrates the hobby of model railroading by taking his ironing board on the road. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Paul. Hello, how are you? Just fine, thank you. Now, I have to ask, is the ironing board yours or your wife's? Well, in these days of equality, you should know that, of course, it's our ironing board. But increasingly, we're finding that it's more useful to be the children's ironing board so they can do the ironing for us. <laughs> Very good. Uh, what, what do we raise them for if not to service, right? <laughs> the significance of this ironing board to your hobby, Paul, where does it come into your display? It's been used before a number of times by people. I can't claim to be original with this, but a number of people in the UK have used an ironing board to display layouts and build within the surface area of an ironing board. And for double O scale, that makes just under four foot uh, working surface which is actually quite a useful size to work in in terms of width. And then in depth, you've got around 18 inches. So it's quite a useful space to work on. And there's plenty of people here, as you say, with smaller homes and less space, using anything they can find, bits of furniture, bookcases, you name it, people have tried to make a layout on it in an attempt to try and find something in their home where they can have a permanent display. Yeah, guitar cases. I've seen them in guitar cases. Inglenooks fit nicely into a guitar case, don't they? For sure. The double O scale Ingleton Sidings Rail which sits atop this ironing board of yours, is what is known in the hobby as a micro layout. So can you give us its exact dimensions, Paul? Yes, it's uh, 45 inches wide by 7 inches deep. It originally sat in a UK windowsill, so a double-frame windowsill, and the layout sat in that space, which is why it's so shallow in terms of 7 inches, and why the controls indeed are on the front of the layout. And 
it was designed for the children to have in their bedroom, in their windowsill. But it was only some years later when we were moving it around the house that it got plonked on the ironing board and we worked out that 45 inches was also the exact dimensions of the, of the ironing board. So that's really where it ended up for display purposes. And actually in a display on Model Railway Show, the layout sits on top of the ironing board but encased in a larger piece of homemade furniture that we made to display it because we realised that when it sits on an ironing board at an exhibition, the height of viewing isn't ideal because obviously the ironing board was made for waist height. So people were having to stoop down uh-huh. to see yeah, the layout. See, yes. So we built it and raised it and, if you like, encased it so that it showed off the feature of the ironing board. It is very ingenious and it's this, usually at this point in our chat that we remind our listeners if they haven't been to the links uh, to take a look at your website, uh, we'd invite them to uh, do so just as soon as this chat is over. We hope they already have a picture in their mind of, of what it is we're talking about. Ingleton Sidings, is that just a play on the word Ingle Nook? Yes, it is. Although, <laughs> when I went to an exhibition in the north of England, uh, in Yorkshire, in fact, I was reminded by a number of people up there that actually Ingleton, although I'd made it up on the spot, was actually a real place in Yorkshire and, um, and actually quite a famous place for railways, would you believe? I mean, the coincidence is uh, astounding. But uh, And then somebody pointed out that actually the wrong, I had the wrong brick colour in my model to actually be the real Yorkshire Ingleton. And I had to remind them, actually, it wasn't set on Ingleton in Yorkshire at all, but uh, it is actually just a play on words. Now, a favourite switching or shunting puzzle, if you will, in North America is the late John Allen's famous time saver. The Inglenook shunting puzzle seems to be more popular in the UK and Europe. Can you describe to our North American listeners specifically what you need to construct or what kind of form the Inglenook takes? Yeah, for sure. It's it's basically three sidings and a head shunt. And uh, if you go to Carl Arendt's site, which I'm sure you guys know very well, Carl is the is the governor where this stuff is concerned. Yes, was, uh, unfortunately. It was, in, yeah. of course, yes. And the website is such a great, valuable resource. But if you actually look at the Inglenook links there, it'll give you some very good visuals. But essentially, it's three sidings and two points, uh, one a left, one a right, and a head shunt. And there's a certain number of wagons that and loco that must sit in each side. So the, the head shunt, for example, is one loco and three wagons, and then you have five three and three wagon spaces in the in the sidings, respectively. And the idea, of course, is to shunt them around and make up a train for the, the longer siding uh, as per the cards that uh, represent each of the wagons. Head shunt, by the way, folks, is a switch lead over here. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have a British car. I'm always translating uh, British automotive terms to uh, North American. <laughs> uh, I, I must say, over the years, I've really come to... To, uh, admire the uh, British outline design of uh, model railroading. It uh, I think that must be partly my British roots as well. But uh, you've got some good stuff over there, Paul. Just want you to know that. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Uh, can we talk a bit about your website? It, it appears to have an interesting component to it I haven't seen before. One of the pages is actually a pitch for bookings to show promoters, and that reminds me of a, a singer's or musician's website in that respect. Is that how show promoters find display layouts across the Atlantic? No, it's not, and it's something that I'm, I suppose, trying to sort of lead the way with. My roots in model railroading or model railways here is through a local club, and I've always thought that that was a great opportunity to meet other modelers and to have inspiration or gain inspiration from them. But one of the things we do as a club over here, every club has to have an annual show to enable it to raise funds to exist. And as you said in your introduction, they are quite popular attended over here. There's a lot of nostalgia towards trains here, and a lot of young children come up through that in their sort of of three, four, five, six, seven years of age, particularly the boys, obviously. And so they're very well attended with what we call dads and lads or granddads and lads. And a lot 
other chaps that are in their 30s and 40s, sort of reminiscing back into their modelling days when they were younger. So they're very well attended, the exhibitions. And exhibitions are a place where, obviously, you can make three or four thousand pounds per year of profit, which, of course, will keep your club going and keep the layouts being imagined and developed and uh, built. So to find really good layouts for your show is quite a challenge. And the initial thing you do, of course, is to look at your local clubs around you and invite local clubs. But very soon, after a couple of years, you've pretty much exhausted your local supply. So it's very helpful if the layouts are looking for you. Correct, exactly. Mm. So therefore, the only other option to you is to go travelling around at your expense and time to other exhibitions further afield to find them. So my thinking was, well, why don't I actually be on the front foot and actually go out there and offer this to people? And also, forever, clubs are sending you forms to fill in with all the details of your your layout, which can get quite tiresome when you have to do it for the 15th time. So I thought, well, if they can just get a download off the website or they can copy and paste off the website, that would be much easier than it would be to have to keep filling out the forms every time because at this day and age, we none of us use pens anymore, so <laughs> <laughs> just getting it off the website would be much easier. So, so that was the initial thought from it. And I also found that, of course, that with social media in particular, use of Twitter and the Facebook page for the layout as well, the layout became noticed by a number of the publications in the UK, of course, who were embracing this new social connection networking tool. And that really led to some very useful connections and therefore our first published article for the layout in Model Rail magazine here in the UK. And the connections that I've made, this very connection talking to you now, somebody who's regularly in contact with me from Australia. In fact, I looked on my Google Analytics the other day and the uh, blog has been read in no less than 12 countries, which is quite extraordinary for something that's just so small and modest. Fun times we live in, Paul. Fun times. Well, you just think how difficult that would have been to do even 10 years ago. It would have been now impossible and well, you'd have had to spend quite a lot of money to achieve it. Trevor and I have had that discussion uh, about uh, how easily it is to put shows together on a small scale now, just sending out a group email, for example. The website itself now, how many, how many direct connections have you made to show promoters who have said, uh, I've seen your website, would you come to my show, please? I think it's five or six that are uh, booked into next year already. The trouble we've got in this country, of course, is that the hobby, how can I put this politely, the hobby is ageing unhealthily. Mm-hmm. Yes, And the trouble is that many of the people organising the shows are in the late demographic, shall we say, and not getting abreast of this new technology. There are a few people coming through who've uh, got back into the hobby, as I did through my children, and they're coming from the generation that understands this stuff. But there's still, I suppose, well, we call them here silver surfers. There's a lot of people <laughs> in retirement who are enjoying their model railways, and good luck to them, but they're not using the new technology, and these are very often people uh, in the more small provincial shows. That said, some of the big shows, uh, I was at the NEC in Birmingham, which is a big exhibition, in fact, the largest UK exhibition in uh, a couple of weekends ago, and that very much is becoming a big business as such and attended by all the main traders and all the magazines, the press, the model railway press Mm -hmm. and so on. And indeed, the big shows, the regional shows, are beginning to realise the potential of this new media. Are you paid uh, appearance and expense money? And if I may be so crass, how much? That's a really big, interesting debate in itself in this country at the moment, all you are allowed to, or it's suggested that you should uh, charge, are expenses. 
Now, what are expenses? Some modellers will feel that they are semi-professional or even professional modellers and therefore they need to recoup the time which they charge per hour. So they, they work out how many thousands of hours they've spent on it and they will put a price on per hour and they'll look to try and achieve that money back as part of their uh, show expenses. The rest of us who do it as a hobby just really look to cover off any hotel, bed, board, lodgings, petrol and meal expenses. Very often, of course, the bigger shows will provide the hotel and the meals for you, you just really provide your petrol expenses. So you're really doing it for the love, but you do get uh, any costs reimbursed. But increasingly, of course, the cost of doing that and the cost of petrol in this country is so preventative at the moment that it's becoming quite an expensive thing. And of course, the shows themselves are looking to continue to make as much profit as possible in the face of falling attendances due to recession. And therefore, they're cutting back on their costs so that they can uh, maximise their profit. So you're finding that that uh, has happened to us, the show that I attended in Birmingham recently that had uh, six operators for a quite a large layout, uh, Stratton St George, and a lady said to us, I'm sorry, I'd love to book your layout for a show, but you have too many people for us to put up. And therefore that's a, a consideration that, uh, you know, for three, for six people, that's three hotel rooms. And that's quite a large expense yes. for a show. So we don't get paid any uh, appearance fee, but we do get expenses, and expenses can be pretty much what the layout builder wants to charge and that the show will accept. So it's a, I imagine there's a, an area of negotiation every time you're booking, is there? I've never had anybody turn me down yet, mm-hmm. but then again, for a little tiny layout like mine with just two operators in one car, it really is great yeah. value and we just turn up and we're the last in and the first out. I just think that uh, some of our North American listeners are probably listening in amazement that you uh, get any kind of uh, remuneration at all because so often in North America... The hobbyists will spend large sums of their own money and uh, get nothing back to go to a show other than the feedback they get from the audience and the enjoyment of showing off their layout. I think that might be an eye-opener for some people over here. That does surprise me because at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that there wouldn't be a show without the quality of modelling that they've put in. So they do deserve to at least, in my opinion, indeed most of the people in this country would agree that actually they should be recompensed for at least their travel expenses because there wouldn't be a show without them. They are the Presarios, you are the performers, and the uh, layouts are the act, correct? Absolutely right, yes. What do show organizers get in the way of a display? I I would expect if they are paying, uh, they are expecting to see uh, pretty well across the board nicely packaged and presented layouts, correct? Yes, I think the role of the show exhibition manager, as it's called here, is not to be understated because it's as much about having a creative eye as it is about having a business head on you because I know the exhibition managers that I respect, they travel all year around to regional shows within a reasonable probably 100, 200 miles of where they live uh, looking all year long for layouts that are different, something that's a bit unique, something that is a crowd puller. And there are layouts in this country that are guaranteed crowd pullers. If you have certain layouts attend your exhibition and you advertise as such, you know you will get footfall because that layout always attracts people to come and watch it because it is so fantastic. So there are some sort of big pop stars, if you will, big sports stars of the the model railway industry over here, a hobby over here. So you you look for some crowd pullers, but you also look, and there is a big following for American railroading HO over here, and there's some fantastic layouts built over here. Uh, Interestingly, mostly by English people, uh, rather than Americans, as you might think. But there are some fantastic layouts, and and the one thing that always, just getting slightly off the point, the one thing that always amazes me about these layouts is that they're all incredibly well lit. (laughs) They're beautifully lit, and uh, some of the colours and so forth, probably because 
because uh, some of the, the weather over there is so much brighter than here. It just looks like it's from another country, and I think that's something that we can really learn doing the UK imagery here, that the lighting is always so much better on HO models. But there's a big American contingent, there's some European a lot of French and uh, Swiss railways and things like that being demonstrated here, German in particular. And then, of course, you've got the 2mm guys, you've got 4mm double O, or N is 2mm, obviously, or thereabouts. Uh, you've got 4mm double O and then the 7mm O, and even up to G scale and gauge 1, which is even larger. We don't have a lot of time left, Paul, so let's bring this back to Ingleton. And what have you incorporated into Ingleton to uh, maximise its entertainment value and uh, pull in the spectators? The one thing that I really wanted to make was a presence for the layout and because it was on an ironing board it never had much height and everyone was talking about the detail I thought well, wouldn't it be great to see the detail from track level so the last thing I added in, in recently was CCTV and you can buy some very very good colour with sound CCTV cameras that will fit into a space approximately a centimetre and a half square and I managed to get a CCTV camera built into the line side and then that display above the layout giving me the height onto a computer monitor which looks fantastic and you see the actual layout in operation on the screen above so that's one thing that's slightly different there's lots of little scenarios going on there's you know, rusty wheelbarrows there's guys taking a break and having a chat there's uh, vehicles there's rusty old tools lighting automatic points all that kind of thing so there's lots of things to sort of digest there's also a burnt out brake van which was common over here because they were forever catching fire so they've been a very careless set of sidings and they'd let these things uh, catch fire just little scenarios static scenarios that you can watch but the other thing is the advent of these new photo frames rather than having page after page of a4 all over your layout showing you how you made the layout just have one of these little digital photo frames you can now buy maybe a seven inch screen with a series of powerpoint slides just showcasing all the different photos of the build any um, script that you wish to put up on the screen and just have that rotating round. and I think that's an underutilised resource for today's displaying of layouts. We've just stolen that idea from you, Paul. <laughs> With pleasure. Please <laughs> okay, do. Thank you. This has been fascinating, Paul. And as a fan of tiny layouts, I really do like the look of what you've accomplished. It's a highly entertaining two square feet. And uh, thank you for sharing it with us. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Paul Allen over in the UK. Well, you know, that was really refreshing to hear. One of the things I really like about talking to people like uh, Paul and like Carl Arndt is uh, the uh, the idea that you can have a small layout with just excellent presentation around it. Exactly. There's no excuse not to have excellent presentation with a small layout. It, you really have to have it to put that value added into it, keep the crowds in front of it. I encourage everybody to check out Paul's website. He has a very interesting blog. And uh, one thing you'll notice, uh, one thing I found interesting on his website is that he uses it to promote the layout, not only to the public, but also to show organizers. He is a, he is a railroad entertainer. Yes. He, you, just like a musician, a guitar player or a, a vocalist might have a Stomp website. Stomp and Tom. There you go. All right. There we go. Bring so, it's, uh, But some things that uh, North American clubs could certainly pick up some ideas uh, just by looking at uh, his layout. And... You check out photos on our Flickr gallery. Uh, I think Tom's will probably have landed a few. We'll have a few in yep, there by yep, now. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Yep, and, uh, yep. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook. So that's uh, – and, and, of course, we should say that the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You'll find us on iTunes, podcast.com, podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. Well, it's probably time for us to uh, shut the doors on the car barn. Next time out, we're going to take a load off as we discuss sit-down layouts with noted modeler Doug Tagsold. And Chris Lyon will be our guest as we look ahead to the 
the pending birth of an exciting new train show smack in the middle of a hotbed of model railroad activity. Thanks to our steampunk background buddies for keeping this thing hurling down the tracks. Otto Vondrack, who keeps our website freshly pressed. Technical director Chris Abbott, who bought me supper. And Dave Woodhead for our catchy theme music. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. He bought you supper? Yes. He bought supper for everybody.